Good morning, everyone. My name is Cobra Sayadi, and I'm joined by Matilda Harrison. We're third year English students at Macquarie University, producing this podcast for the Macquarie Student Writers Festival. As part of our degree, we're thrilled to have been given the opportunity to interview some amazing contemporary Australian authors on behalf of the university. We're very pleased to be joined by Alice Pung this morning to discuss her latest novel, 100 Days. Alice Pung is an award-winning writer, journalist, and lawyer. She's also worked as a teacher and is currently the artist in residence at Janet Clark Hall at the University of Melbourne. Her book publications include the memoir, Unpolished Gem, which was published in 2006 and won the Australian Newcomer of the Year in the Australian Book Industry Awards. Her first fiction novel, Lorinda, won the Ethel Turner Prize at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and has an upcoming stage adaptation by the Melbourne Theatre Company, which is set to debut in 2022. Her latest novel, 100 Days, was released in June. 100 Days is a story of Karuna, a 16-year-old girl in Melbourne, who in trying to assert her independence falls pregnant and is forcibly confined to her 14-storey housing commission flat by her overbearing mother. Uh, We'll read an excerpt from the novel now. I've about a month to go and then your grandma says she will lock me up for another two months when you come. 100 days. It's no time at all, she tells me, but she's not the one waiting. She can't even catch a falling minute. She's always working and any time goes, and anyway, time goes by so much faster the older you get. I'm so busy, your grandma is always railing. So busy all the time that it feels like I'm rush rushing towards death. When you have children, you'll understand these things, end quote. This novel unfolds as a journal to Karuna's unborn baby, detailing the circumstances of Karuna's cross-cultural upbringing, her relationship to love and sexuality, and her fraught relationship with her mother. Alice, one of the things we really love about this novel is the way it illustrates the complexity of the migrant experience in Australia. Like most children of migrant families, Karuna has to navigate the challenges of creating an identity for herself, often having to deal with the racial and social prejudices of Australia in the 1980s, but against the backdrop of a very traditional mother with sort of rigid expectations of her. Can you tell us a bit more about the inspiration behind writing a character like Karuna and why you felt her story was important to tell? Oh, sure, Matilda. Karuna is uh, based on... uh, you know, an amalgamation of a number of young women I knew and grew up with. So two of them uh, got pregnant in their teens, 15, 16 years old, and I never saw them again. And it turns out that both of them from very different cultures, their mothers had told them that they could have the child and the child would be raised as their sister. And that was to give them uh, ability to continue on their education but I never saw them so they were taken out of school and probably went to different schools or one of them just went to work with her mum as an outworker so that was what was happening as as far you know as the 80s which is quite modern in in our day and age and um, I also grew up with a lot of uh, young adults who had very adult responsibilities so friends who were looking after very sick family members or who lived in big extended households, or who had parents like my mother who is illiterate. So they had to call up the phone company or uh, sort out the electricity bill 
back then you could do those things a lot easier without providing 10 forms of ID. So I wanted to create this character, Matilda, because in a lot of young adult literature, you have diverse characters, but they're, if they're not written by people who are diverse themselves, the characters tend to be too good. <laughs> so if you have a Vietnamese character, they're only flaw if they're too hardworking or they're too overloaded with all these um, quirks and not real uh, personhood. So they might be feisty, feminist, have an earring through their nose, um, sassy, sound like Juno in that movie about the teenage girl who gets pregnant, yeah. have a retort for everything. <laughs> and um, so you'll notice my character, Karuna, doesn't say very much in the book. Actually, most people don't notice because you're hearing her thoughts all the time. But if you go sentence by sentence, she has about 17 speaking lines. <laughs> and most of the time she's complaining about her mother. So I wanted to create a three-dimensional character while maintaining the, the realism of what a teenager really sounds like. A, an introverted teenager who is kind of fed up doesn't say very much at all. So <laughs> that was what I was trying to work at. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting, actually. Um, one of the other things that really sort of struck me while reading the novel is also the underlying loneliness and isolation felt by Karuna's own mother from lacking a sense of community, which in some ways is impeded by her constant struggle to provide for her family. Uh, following the baby's birth, Karuna realizes this when she says, we're the only family she has now, this small brown woman adrift in a world of ghosts and half ghosts. Um, maybe this signals Karuna's newfound sympathy for her mother's circumstances and a growing sense of agency on her part as well. Uh, how important do you think is community and belonging to a migrant family settling in a new country? And why was this important for you to ex explore in the novel? Oh, Cobra, that's an excellent question because, uh, as you can tell, my family are immigrants to this country. Not only were they immigrants, they were refugees. So when I was growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, you, um, you stick together with other survivors because they understand that you went through the killing fields of Cambodia or the Vietnam War, uh, that you lost half your family members. And they tell you where the jobs are, where the dodgy employers are, mm -hmm. where the people who might sexually harass you in the factories are. So it's a safe it's a way to keep yourself safe and it's a way to keep yourself sane. Now, I wanted to see what would happen if a woman who didn't speak um, or couldn't write in English, didn't speak very much English, suddenly lost all that uh, by virtue of coming here. And one of uh, quite a few of my friends are, um, are Eurasian, mixed race, and a few of them had mothers who were in Karuna's predicament who wrote to the fathers um, through letters you know, <laughs> for a number of years and then came here without knowing anyone, without any of their family. So it was incredibly isolating. And yet there's a stereotype of immigrant women being passive because they don't speak English and they're controlled by men. And I wanted to give this woman a sense of independence, but with the sense of independence comes great frustration and hardship and anger. <laughs> so I wanted to create, again, a realistic character of what an immigrant mother uh, would be like in those circumstances. Yeah, yeah well, she's definitely, you know, the furthest thing from passive. Um, <laughs> speaking of Karuna's mother, um, this novel also really grapples with 
the extremities of maternal love and how this instinct to protect your child can teeter on sort of over-controlling them in a way that can be quite harmful. Um, when writing to her child, Karuna says in the novel, it is never a problem that your grandma doesn't care enough for us. The problem with your grandma is that she cares too much. Um, so what made you want to explore this aspect of motherhood and do you feel that these grey shaded areas are often like underrepresented or under acknowledged in some way? Oh, Matilda, definitely, because, you know, being Asian Australian, there's this trope of the tiger mother, which I've, I've never met many tiger mothers in my life. Karuna's mother is definitely not a tiger mother because she's illiterate, <laughs> but she's a very controlling mother. And I wanted to explore, um, not from a cultural aspect purely, but also just mainly from a psychological aspect because it transcends cultures, you know. Had an Irish lady who was in her 60s tell me, write to me saying, I think you've written about my mother. My mother is not Chinese-Cambodian. She's Irish, but she's exactly like this. So um, at what point does love tip into control and at what point does that form of control turn into a form of a child abuse, according to outsiders? Because when you live inside that household and when you have nowhere to go because you're a minor, your, your parents are, you know, <laughs> directly controlled. They own you almost. Uh, they make all decisions for you. You have to find a way to psychologically come at peace with that. Uh, otherwise, um, and I'm not saying you should be at peace with that, but you've got to find a way to survive that. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think that this form of psychological control um, I've seen it happen actually in middle class families, but it's done with a smile. Like some some of my friends in high school, because I went to five different high schools and one of them was a private school. I just remember seeing her and her mother and I thought, how sweet is this mother calls her sweetheart? And she would tell me, I hate my mother. She's a real bitch. She gets me to do things that, you know, that I don't want to. She thinks I'm fat. And I said, look, your mother has never called you fat. And um, <laughs> she said, but my mother doesn't keep any junk food. It's all these other ways of psychological control that um, that a young person can see right through. Because as um, Ernest Hemingway says, every good writer has to have a built-in bull bullshit detector. And I think young people have that more acutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really think that's that's one of the reasons as well, you know, among many others, why this story resonates with so many people as well, like young people, but also, you know, um, I guess migrant communities as well from different parts of the world. Um, one of um, my favorite parts from the book was, was when Karuna revisits her local community center and notices an old poster that features a poem by um, Lebanese American writer Khalil Gibran. Uh, the poem starts with the line, your children are not your children, they come through you, but not from you. Um, it's also one of my own favorite poems as well. Um, and the poem reappears at the end of the novel and it signals a full circle moment for Karuna as she comes to fully uh, except her mother's flawed expression of love, I guess, and um, decides upon uh, the kind of mother that she wants to be to her own child. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of this quote to the story and what this um, declaration says about Karuna's own approach to motherhood as well? Oh, Cobra, I'm glad that's one of your favourite poems because I discovered it 
when I was also at university. Um, so I discovered his, his book, The Prophet, and, and it was wonderful and life-changing. Literature can do that. And even though I wasn't a mother then, and I am now, I've got three kids, that metaphor of the bow and arrow always stuck with me. So he, he says, your children are not your children, they're visitors from tomorrow, which you can never visit even in your dreams. And then he goes to work in this wonderful metaphor about your children being arrows that are flung far into the future. And of course, hope, you all hope that your, um, your children will outlive you. So you have to be, as the parent, you have to be the bow and you have to hold that bow steady as the bow so that you can fling those arrows as far as they can possibly go. So if the bow is shaky or if the bow is, you know, unsteady, those arrows won't go very far. Um, and I think it's just about being consistent and being um, enduring as a parent. These, these are um, kind of boring words, being enduring, being constant, <laughs> being consistent. But in any relationship, they're, they're very undervalued, even romantic relationships. You know? mm. So um, so that poem actually had a lot of, uh, it helped me shape the way I saw all relationships, not just the parent-child relationship. And it, it made its way into the book, specifically because Karuna is working class and from a very uh, disadvantaged neighbourhood. And people assume that people from these neighbourhoods, you know, don't read anything or read tabloid newspapers or read <laughs> trashy books, but they don't. <laughs> One of the things I also really enjoyed um, when I was reading the novel was all the fairy tale motifs that are kind of interspersed throughout the novel. Um, but I think it's interesting because they have, you know, some darker undertones that seem to be more emblematic of the Brothers Grimm than like the conventional <laughs> Disney films. Um, you make reference to Cinderella, like Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, and, you know, notably the, the Jim Henson film Labyrinth. Um, do you think these fairy tales play a subconscious role in shaping Karuna's expectations of her life and the people around her? Do you think they influence her decisions in any way? Oh, Matilda, that, that's an excellent question because I grew up with Walt Disney fairy tales, you know, the golden age of Disney and then the Renaissance, Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Aladdin where things were a little bit more sanitised. They all had happy endings. There was They tried very careful not to have the racist yeah, <laughs> racism in, in those fairy tales. But also because I went to a, um, a, a primary school that you would these days called disadvantage they had books from the 50s yeah from the 1950s the brothers grim and those fairy tales were grim and we didn't think anything of it because our lives were a little bit grim <laughs> we, we all came as children of refugees some of my friends actually came as unaccompanied minors so they were 14 and 11 this pair of brothers who came on a boat by themselves because their parents wanted them to live and so I grew up with uh, this reality Santa never visited our house the Santa didn't exist my parents were Buddhist uh, so I, I never believed in fairy tales and that's what I wanted in Karuna's character she's a bit skeptical about these fairy tales but suddenly um, one day she goes to the cinema and she sees a dark fairy tale and the 80s were wonderful for making dark fairy tales you know stories that scare the shit out of me as a kid like the dark crystal 
and to an extent labyrinth until I discovered David Bowie and his package. <laughs> There's whole GIF dedicated to that. It just really does your mind in <laughs> when you're eight or nine years old and you're seeing this person. One of my best friends says that when she watched it, it was a labyrinth is quite dark. It's about a goblin king who steals a, a teenage girl's brother and the goblin king is in love with her and she's about 15 years old and he's 37 in the movie. <laughs> There's many things wrong. It would never be made this day and age, but it was so complex as well. Um, and one of my best friends told me, man, David Bowie, he looks like that woman, Wendy, that comes to our house every Wednesday to play bingo. And yet he is so sexually compelling. I don't understand. You know? <laughs> so it was a nuanced fairy tale that didn't strip it of all danger or um, this dark edge of, you know, coming of age, getting to know yourself um, and, and your sexual agency, which I thought belongs perfectly in a book like this. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting um, that part when, you know, they go, she goes to the cinema with Tweezer and she sees it and her and Tweezer have completely um, <laughs> polar opposite reactions. You know, <laughs> Karuna feels this really, you know, urgent sense of like attraction to, you know, the <laughs> Karuna um, and Tweezer's just repulsed and Karuna feels almost feels really ashamed. I thought that was so interesting. Oh, I think he does. Yeah, that film does that to people. Some people find it so off-putting and so creepy and others find it incredibly um, awakening. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I could ask as, as my next question as well. Earlier you, um, you mentioned Karuna's kind of working class background as well. And, um, and I guess in your past interviews as well about your previous works, you've mentioned that class plays an important role in your writing um, as someone who grew up in a working class neighbourhood yourself. Do you feel um, that class issues continue to play a major role in this novel? And has your perception of class changed in any way since the start of your writing career? Oh, Cobra, to be honest, 15 years ago when I published my first book, I wasn't aware of class. I thought I was really advantaged because I was at university and I thought, you know, we're really wealthy because my parents had moved out of our working class suburb and brought this big, um, I kid you not, this Mac Mansion in, on the top of this hill. And then when I went to university, I got a more nuanced look at class um, because I, I, you know, as, as a young university, young radical, I joined organisations like Socialist Alternatives and they really wanted me to speak at meetings about my mother's outworking. But any moment that I mentioned that my mother took great pride in what she did and she considered herself a businesswoman because she sold her, she made jewellery and she sold it um, all around the neighbourhood, you know, all around the Vietnamese shops. She was being horribly exploited. They didn't want to hear about this sense of agency. They wanted me to talk about this idea of the third world in the first world, which is what they saw was happening all these aunties of mine sewing in their uh, back sheds and making clothes for big companies that you know whereas they saw themselves as earning a living and so I thought these are interesting narratives they want to see me as a third world person in the first world I was I was born here and they want me to represent you know the, the third world um, only as a sense of victim you know that you couldn't mention that it was fun, you had a sense of agency, 
putting buttons in little plastic pockets and stapling them on a sports girl short um, gave you a, a sense of community, you know, uh, sportsmanship with, with your Vietnamese friends. They didn't want to hear any of that. And so when I started to write, that, that was what my stories was, were about because I'd read so many refugee stories that had no sense of agency. The refugees were victims and they were hardworking and they succeeded in the end. And that's always been a point of mine to show uh, that it's not all you know, happy endings. There's no migrant success narrative that we have to follow as immigrant writers to be published. And the more I do this, I think the more it opens up for other writers to tell diverse stories. I don't mean ethnically diverse. I mean class diverse, you know, <laughs> genre diverse. You can write science fiction. Yeah. All sorts of diversity, yeah. And I guess as an extension to that as well, um, writing in itself is a big uh, has has a big role in in the novel as well for Karuna, who uh, perhaps feels like one of the ways in which she can she can gain that agency or control over her life is is through writing and and you know what this is what she does as well writing the journals to her um, unborn baby so I guess that in itself as well is um, an important um, kind of vehicle for for Karuna to express herself and, and um, write her own story and her own narrative um, why do you think it's it's um, important for I suppose you touched on this already but um, you know why was it important for you to kind of write about young people, especially, you know, um, maybe children of, of migrants um, to kind of feel this, this kind of power in, in writing and maybe expressing themselves through the medium of, um, of literature? Oh, Cobra, I love this question because I've never been asked that about migrant children specifically. And it's so important because it's, it's a literary cliche where you write didactic books for young people. Didactic um, meaning you've got to impart some important lesson you've learnt in life. And a lot of those books actually, it's a cliche that you have mainly young female, you know, protagonists finding the power of words. They read Jane Austen, they love literature, they keep diaries, but these aren't working class immigrant children. These, these are white middle-class children who discover the power of words through a teacher or through the parents having a library or the parents getting them a special book. And I thought long and hard, to be honest, whether I should have this cliche in my book. And then I thought, when have I ever read a story about a working class pregnant teenage girl who likes reading and who <laughs> you know, keeps a diary? I don't think I ever have. So it's not a literary cliche. It is crucial to Karuna's story because she doesn't have Facebook. This is set in 1987. She can't Google ways to um, deal with her pregnancy. She only gets literature from doctors, um, you know, doctors' offices where, when she has an appointment. And that stuff is like 20 years old. So she thinks the way to prevent pregnancy is to uh, shoot settle down there. Like that, that's <laughs> dangerous and harmful. So writing, reading is a way to give her information, not necessarily the most correct information, but possibly and arguably less harmful than grandma's information that's uh, derived from superstition and, and tradition that's passed down that, you know, might have been passed down like Chinese whispers and kind of bastardised in the process to the point where 
she has to not eat chocolate in order for her child to be white. Uh, superstitious stuff like that. So writing is a way to give her agency. And this journal gives her a voice. And I know it's, it's a literary technique and it's, um, it's a fiction. No teenager writes a journal complete with who said what and dialogue. <laughs> no one writes a journal like a Polish book. But I had to give her um, this sense of talking to her unborn child because the more she speaks to her child, the less lonely she becomes. She has a co-conspirator. And the, every month when that Reader's Digest magazine comes in, she has 25 different voices that she hears besides her own. And I don't count television as a voice. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful to, to, to hear. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alice. It's been really special for us to get to talk to you today. Um, 100 Days by Alice Pung is available to purchase now on paperback or ebook through the Black Ink Books website or through your local book retailers. That concludes our podcast today. Thank you guys so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>